It's kind of an exciting time. We had a, we've had a group from uh, Bethel to go to the Amazons down in uh, South America and about left about 10 days ago and they've just gotten back. I had the, the privilege of playing a small part in that, a very small part. I was uh, driving the van uh, to get them from Bethel to uh, DFW. And on the way there, I had a con- there was a gal from one of the, the women from Bethel that was in the seat behind me. And I heard her saying that this was her third trip to go on the Amazon trip. I thought that was kind of interesting. So I turned to her and I said, well, let me ask you, I mean, why are you going back again? You've already been, you know, a couple of times. And so she began to relate to me, you know, the excitement that there was in going. But one thing that stood out in her response was that she loved to see the effect that the trip had especially on the young people that were going along on this. Their eyes were open to things they had never seen before. They'd never been exposed to things like a third world country where there's lots of poverty, where people are destitute, where there's incredible needs for medical help and so forth. And their lives are impacted. Their lives are changed as they encounter this. They learn compassion. You know, there's a danger of being all wrapped up in our own little world. It's easy to lose sight of the the loss that are around us. But what God wants from us is to feel the way that he does about the lost in the world, to feel the same kind of compassion that he has. So the message this morning is about how we respond when God is prompting us to reach out to the lost. Before we get into the text, let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask for his guidance and illumination. Lord God, we thank you this morning as we come before you in prayer. You are a God of compassion. Most of us in this room have come to know that compassion as we understood your love for us, how Christ gave himself for us and that you gave us new life in Christ. Thank you so much for that. I pray this morning, Lord, that we might hear from you, from your word, and I pray, Lord, that you would speak to us and give us the kind of eyes to see the world the way that you see it. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, this begins uh, the first uh, segment of our short series on the book of Jonah. So we're in the Old Testament, which is a part of the Bible that I love so much. Book of Jonah, it's not very long. There's four chapters. A lot of it has to do with a city called Nineveh. But when you think about it, three out of the four chapters aren't really about Nineveh and what happens there. They're really about a person called Jonah. Jonah chapter 1, God gives him an assignment to do, but he he flees from it. Chapter 2, Jonah has to be disciplined for being disobedient to God. Chapter 3, we do get to Nineveh, and there's ministry there. In chapter 4, when all that ministry's over with, we come back to Jonah and dealing with his heart. So really, we might say that the book has more to do with Jonah than it does with Nineveh. Okay, if you have a Bible, open it up to uh, Jonah chapter 1. We'll begin looking at the text. Uh, The first part of this chapter is Jonah's vain attempt to run from God's mission. In verses 1 through 3, we see Jonah on the run. 
Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa, and he found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare, and he went down into it to go with him to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Okay, here in the, the first verse, we encounter this person, the Jonah. It doesn't tell us too much about him. It doesn't uh, tag him with any king of Israel or um, tell us much more about him. But we do have some information about him in 2 Kings 14.25. There's one other place in the Old Testament where he is mentioned. 2 Kings 14.25. And um, we'll read that now. He, that is King Jeroboam II, restored the board of Israel from Lebo Hamat as far as the Sea of the Aravah, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke by his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet who was from Gath Hefer. Well, we do know that uh, Jeroboam reigned from about 793 to 753, so apparently Jonah would fit somewhere into this period. That has some significance to our chapter because it's going to be in a time when the Assyrian Empire uh, reigned over the world. Now, also in Jonah chapter 1, verse 2, we, it mentions about Nineveh. And uh, we have a map that will help you locate uh, Nineveh. Nineveh was one of the great cities of what was called the Assyrian Empire. From about, for 300 years in Middle Eastern history, from about 900 to 600 B.C., the Assyrian Empire was the, but far and away, the dominant uh, empire of the, the Middle East. They ruled that whole area, and they expanded uh, westward, and they were conquering everybody in their sight. They were dreaded by everybody. But the, they had several royal cities, Ashur, Kalak, and Nineveh, this is an artist's reconstruction of what one of the royal cities might have looked like with lavish temples to deities and palaces and so forth. It's very possible that Nineveh might have been the largest city of the world at that time. It certainly was probably uh, undoubtedly one of the most uh, significant. But the Assyrians were not a popular people by any means for, because of what they did to their enemies we see their atrocities were very uh, threatening and, and so forth. And this um, stone engraving that you see here, there's a couple of, of, of depictions of their atrocities. On the right-hand side, what the Assyrian soldiers are doing are taking their enemies and they're impaling them. So they have a long, sharp pole that they run up through the gut and then elevate it, and that would be... <laughs> It's a way of intimidating your enemy. Over on the, the left-hand side, you see an Assyrian soldier, and he's chopping off heads of his defeated enemies. And what the Assyrians would do is they'd chop off all their heads of the soldiers that they had conquered. And whatever city that was, they would pile these heads up by the city gate. And everybody that's going in and out of the city gate, you know, is daily going to witness those uh, severed heads. And it's a way of Assyria telling them, if you dare to try to you know, revolt against us, You're, this is what you get. So the Assyrians were someone that was not only dreaded, they were hated. 
Now we can possibly understand that, that Jonah might have had questions about God's assignment. We go back to the text now. <clears throat> it says that Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Well, as we saw a moment ago on the map that uh, Nineveh and Assyria were far to the east. We don't know exactly where Tarshish is, but it's a city that's somewhere on the Mediterranean world. Suggestions have been made. It might have been in Spain. It might have been somewhere in, in North Africa, it's possibly Tunisia or something like that. But the point is that, no, that Jonah is going the very opposite direction uh, that God you know, wanted him to go. God's purpose in there was not just to rail against the Assyrians, but to, not only to confront them with their evil, but to extend compassion to them, to have a message of repentance. So God cared about them. He cared about the lost in Nineveh. But we read in uh, verse 3 that Jonah, twice it says in verse 3, Jonah ran from the presence of the Lord. He was running away from what God wanted to do there. Perhaps he deplored the Assyrians like most other of the Hebrews did. The Assyrians also imposed tribute on them so that they had to gather their silver and gold every year and make a large payment to them, which was a financial uh, imposition upon the people as well. So there are lots of good reasons, you know, that uh, Jonah would, uh, you know, not felt the compassion that God did about that. Away from the presence of the Lord. You know, that's interesting. A, earlier this summer, our brother Rob Miller preached from Psalm 139. You can't really escape God's presence. Psalm 139, verse 7 through 10. Where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol in the grave, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning, like the rays of the eastern sun, and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, the Mediterranean to the west, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. Proverbs 5.21 says, For a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his paths. We can't escape the presence of the Lord. It's kind of a very foolish thing to think that you could do such a thing. But, you know, that's when we disobey God, oftentimes that's what goes with it. We want to be as far away from God, you know, as we can. And when there's sin in our life, we're running from God. You may feel some sort of distance between you and God. You've probably felt that in your Christian life at times. When you've disobeyed God and you wanted to really have nothing to do with him or you felt you wanted to hide or get away. This is what Jonah's going through. Well, we go on through to verses 4 through 6. Jonah may run, but God's going to be in pursuit. I like the way verse 4 starts, but the Lord. <laughs> He's not going to let Jonah just do this and God sit by and do nothing. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had laid down and was fast asleep. So the captain came, and he said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? In other words, how could you be sleeping at a time like this? 
Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God, your God, will give a thought to us that we may not perish. In other words, may God will be mindful of our situation and, and mercifully act on our behalf. Verse 5 says that um, each one of them cried out to his God. So I take it that the, the sailors of this ship that they're on are probably not Hebrews. Um, they're probably, they could very well have been Phoenicians. Phoenicia would be, correspond to what we know as Lebanon today. They were the, the people that were famous for their seafaring efforts, and they had established colonies around the Mediterranean. In any case, they don't worship or follow the Lord God of Israel. So they're crying out to whatever deity it might have been that they worshiped. And there would have been multi, uh, a number of different deities uh, that they cried out to. This isn't just about Jonah as God pursues him. It, at times, God is also going to tap us on the shoulder. That is, we may be asked, to, God may be asking us to do something, and quite frankly, we would rather not do it. We may want to say God, no to what God is calling us to do. What do you mean sleeping at a time like this? As Christians, we can be sleeping when we ought to be on duty. We move on to the next part of the, the chapter, verses 7 through 16. Now we're going to see the consequences of jo Jonah not saying yes to God. The first part is that Jonah's guilt is going to be discovered in verses 7 through 9. And I'll read that. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots, that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots. And the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? What people are you? And he said to them, I'm a Hebrew. And I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. And when it says, I fear the Lord God, he obviously isn't walking in the fear of the Lord at this moment. So what he means is that that's the God that... I respect and, and associated with or I recognize or something uh, like that. But we see the, the interesting way the sovereignty of God works in this situation. Now, these are pagan sailors, as we mentioned a while ago. And so they think they're going to solve the problem. There's somebody on board that they think is guilty that's brought on this bad fortune, you know, upon their ship. So their idea is to cast lots in some fashion and whoever, and that will determine who the guilty party is, and then they'll act against them. Now, that's, they're not praying. They're not asking the Lord to you know, give them a, the answer to this at all. But amazingly, ironically, we might say, God is going to work through that pagan process and say, it's Jonah. God caused it to follow Jonah. There's God's sovereignty right there, despite their pagan attempt as they do this. Now, verses 10 through 12, Jonah is forced to confront his disobedience. Then the men were exceedingly afraid, and they said to him, What is this you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord, because he had told them. And they said to him, Well, what shall we do to you, that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Well, pick me up. Hurl me into the sea, and the sea will quiet down for you. 
For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Now we see here in this last verse that Jonah is acknowledging that it's, he's the responsible party for this misfortune that's happened to the ship. But notice what this isn't. It's not a confession to God of what he's done. He's just relating this to these pagan sailors. He's not humbling himself before God and confessing his sin and repenting of it and asking for God's forgiveness and saying, Lord, forgive me. You know, I'm, I will go to, to Nineveh after all. No, he's not doing that. He's being very hard-headed and persistent in his rebellion in God. It's, it's going to take a little bit more arm twisting by God to get Jonah into a position where he's ready to be obedient. And God is a God that will discipline his own children as he did with Jonah, so he does with us. And if necessary, you know, God is going to make sure his will gets accomplished. Verses 13 through 16, we see the price that Jonah has to pay for his disobedience. Verse 13, nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Obviously, this is the sovereignty of God, you know, working. Verse 14, therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. Now, you may notice uh, in most English Bibles, the word Lord will be capitalized there is a word Lord that means one sovereign or master, but that is not this word. This is actually the word Yahweh in the Hebrew text. It's the personal name for God. So these, if they were Phoenicians, they would have worshipped some other Canaanite deity. But here they're actually calling out to Yahweh, the God of Israel, you know, to, and they're saying, let us not perish for this man's life. In other words, they realize now they're going to have to throw Jonah overboard. But in doing so, they don't want to offend Yahweh by that so that it would incur, you know, something more severe upon themselves. So they're saying, you know, don't hold us accountable, you know, for this. They're praying. So they picked up Jonah. They hurled him into the sea, verse 15. The sea ceased from its raging. Then the man feared Yahweh exceedingly. And they offered a sacrifice to Yahweh. And they made vows. <laughs> They're getting closer to the Lord God than, you know, that Jonah is in all of this. Jonah, excuse me, God had prompted Jonah to reach out in compassion to the lost, that is to the people of Nineveh. But Jonah only said no. It's not easy to say yes to God at times when he prompts us to do something. I've struggled with that myself. In fact, I'll relate a little story to you that happened to me some time ago. After seminary, my wife and I uh, went to become missionaries in, in the Philippines. And following that, uh, we, I taught at a seminary in California for a time and realized that if I was going to uh, continue in a teaching career, I needed to have a, a doctoral degree. So we looked at several possibilities and the outcome of all that was that I applied and was accepted to be in a PhD program at the University of Texas at Austin. 
Well, I'm about 36 years old by that time uh, in life. So I get down to Austin, and uh, I'm in a very small program. You're, you're talking about a campus of over 50,000 students, and I'm in a Hebrew studies program, which there are probably less than 10 graduate students in the whole thing. They had quite a number of bachelor-level students studying modern Hebrew, but very few graduate students. And so I go to pay, you know, tuition and free fees and stuff for, that you do every semester. And all, this, all of us are required to pay a student activity fee, a few hundred dollars. Well, I discovered that there, part of the student activity fee went to support the Gay and Lesbian Affairs Committee of the University of Texas. And being a Christian, I didn't feel that that was right, that my money had to go to support something that I felt in objection to. Well, I didn't know what to do about it, but I finally I sat down and I wrote, I wrote a letter to the president of the University of Texas trying to explain my reasons, not trying to say they don't have a right to exist on campus, just that I don't want to financially be supportive of that. Well, I wasn't expecting to get an answer from the president of the university, but, and I didn't. But a few months later, I got a letter in the mail, and it wasn't from the president of the University of Texas. It was from the president of the Gay and Lesbian Affairs Committee of the University of Texas. Well, he proceeded to tell me uh, in a number of words what he thought of me and what a narrow-minded, bigoted person and so forth I was, and, and gave all these other statements in his letter. You know, I, it was kind of a, I thought to myself, you know, he's so wrong here and here and here. And I was discussing it with my wife and I said, you know, I could take him logically apart here and here and here. And she said, yeah, you could do that, but you wouldn't win him to Christ that way. Now, here's the other really weird thing. You talk about Jonah being <laughs> the sovereignty of God, putting Jonah, you know, the lot casting on him. The guy signs the deal, and I'm going to give a, this is not his true name, but I'm calling him Abram because he was Jewish. And he said, and your fellow student, Abram, of the less than 10 graduate students at the University of Texas, he was one of my fellow students in a Hebrew studies program. I didn't know uh, what his uh, choice of lifestyle was, but now I discovered it. So I got in contact with him. Now this was a struggle for me. I assure you, I did not want to meet with this person. And I really didn't want to be associated with him. But we agreed to get together. And to do so, we would meet at the student union at the University of Texas in Austin. And we did. There were little tables set outside the student union, and uh, we just kind of got to know each other a little bit. Found out some more things about him. He shared some things about me. And this is crazy. We agreed to start meeting on a weekly basis to read scripture together. That is, we would read from the Hebrew Bible and so, uh, that's what we did. Week after week, month after month, the two of us sat down, we were reading through the scriptures. Now, 
We spent a lot of time, I remember, reading through the Proverbs and so forth. And this went on for most of the school year. And finally, we came to, it was about, uh, it's getting close to Easter time. And we were in a little room up in Perry Castaneda Library that uh, was there for, and we were there for our, our normal meeting. And suddenly he turned and said, you know, I saw this newspaper this last year. I think it was Oklahoma City or something. And he said it was so disgusting. He said the whole front page, they had put a cross with Jesus and there was blood all over the place. And he started telling me, you know, about how distasteful he thought that was. And um, so I thought for a moment. I listened to him, let him say what he wanted to say. And I said, Abram, have you thought much about the sacrificial system of the Old Testament? And from that point, I began to share the... You talk about blood. You should have think about the Old Testament temple and all the sacrifices and blood that was shed there. And I began to relate to them how God was preparing the world for the fact that one day he would sacrifice his son on the cross. And I had the opportunity to, to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with him. When, we, when I finished, he, I have never been in a room before where I felt the conviction so strong as I did at that moment. He folded up his papers his book, didn't say a word, and he just slowly slipped out of the room. I don't know what eventually his, what he chose to do. I do know that in those moments, God was somehow using me to reach out to a man that was lost, that needed to know that God loved him despite his lifestyle. And he died for every sin that man ever committed. Shortly afterwards, he went off to study um, in another country, and I didn't get a chance to see him again. But, I, you know, it stuns me to this day that, you know, how God had worked through a very unique situation to reach out. I never would have dreamed that I would. I just went there trying to get a doctoral degree to continue my teaching career and ended up having that sort of an assignment. We go back to the text. Okay, now we're at John, Jonah 1:17, which illustrates God's indescribable compassion for the lost. We read the text. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Three days and three nights. Jesus made reference to this in Matthew 12. 38 through 41 in the New Testament. I'll read that passage. Then some of the scribes and the Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. And he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Jesus mentioned in this passage the sign of Jonah. 
the sign of Jonah that would be given to that generation in his day was his death and his resurrection. You know, that is the penultimate expression of God's compassion for the lost, that the Son of God, the very Trinity, would take on human form because he cared enough that for us, that he loved us, that he gave himself, that we could be forgiveness and have eternal life. God in that act was showing his compassion for the world. God did infinitely more for the lost than he is asking us to do. If God cared this much for the lost, surely we could care enough to share God's love for them. You know, there are people all around us who are lost, who need to be reached for Christ. A lot of my ministry, as we come now to the close of this message, has been in... uh, in the Middle East for the last 25 years. I've been working there, but a lot of the work that I did was in the country of Syria. In 2007, I had a direct flight from Cairo, Egypt, into Aleppo, Syria, and I began ministry among some believers up in that part of, uh, of Syria, and was doing so for several years. Along the way, I, I met a pastor who was down in Damascus, and He told me on my next uh, trip over, I was going over about four or five times a year uh, for a teaching there. And he said, one of the times when you're coming over, I said, I'd like to to meet you. Could you come through Damascus and uh, meet up with me? And so I arranged to do so. I took a bus from Aleppo down to Damascus. The pastor asked me to have fatur with him. It's an Arabic word for breakfast. It's a wonderful delight. And so there's a little church there off of a street called Straight in the city of Damascus. We sat down and we were having breakfast together. And he said, I have a couple men that I'd like you to meet. Could I bring them in and, you know, you meet with them? I said, sure. So he brought two men in and they sat in the table in front of me. One of these men, and they were both believers in Jesus Christ, but they had both come out of a Muslim background. One of them was, had been a general in the Syrian military. The other man had been an imam who was preaching a preacher in the mosque for 20 years. I remember the guy that, as I listened to their stories, it was pretty amazing, you know, how God had brought them to faith in Christ. A stunning moment for me. The guy who was the imam in the the mosque, he showed me a picture of what he used to look like, you know, a large beard and so forth. Now he was all clean-shaven in his right mind. And um, I turned to him and I said, Brother, how did this happen to you? you? You preached in the mosque for 20 years, laying out the dictates of Islam and stuff, and now you're a believer in Christ? I said, how in the world did that happen to you? And so he began sharing with me, you know, the details of kind of how it came about and how he eventually got a New Testament and so forth. But I'll never forget the statement that he made to me. He said, all those years I preached in the mosque, I never knew that God loved me personally. That's the difference. And the God we have 
It's a God that reached down in Christ to love us personally. And that guy, finally, he got sight of that. And it changed him from being a radical Muslim to being a radical for Jesus Christ. There are people around us that are lost in America just as they are in other countries of the world. They're around you and they're around me. And we need to be able to reach out to them in the opportunities that God gives us. There are plenty of opportunities here at Bethel. You could go on a short-term mission trip. You could get involved with Young Life locally. You can get involved with um, a ministry to... uh, unwed mothers and different things. But you know, it's just the people that are around you in your day-to-day work world that you're rubbing shoulders with. In the workplace, maybe somebody in your neighborhood. When God is prompting you to reach out to them, to extend God's compassion to them, you and me need to be able to say yes. So what's the message of Jonah chapter 1? It really boils down to this. When God prompts us to reach out to the lost, we need to say yes. When God prompts us to reach out to the lost, we need to say yes. Don't be a Jonah. Be a Christian who has compassion for those who are lost and are ready to let them know the God who has loved us, a God of compassion. Will you join me in prayer as we close? Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning as we look over this chapter of Jonah that we see your heart. We see that the concerns that you had, and here was a prophet of old that, although he should have had the the compassion for the lost, even he stumbled in that. And we stumble too, Lord. We need your help to learn how to be people of compassion for the lost. I pray, Lord, as we go forth from this place this morning into our week, we would go with a renewed sense of who you are, how you care about other people, and why we're here, that we're not just going through the week, getting our income, taking care of our business, but really concerned about people around us. I pray for that in Christ's name. Amen. Will you stand now, and uh, we'll close. Now the God of peace, who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep, even Jesus our Lord, equip you in every good thing to do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Be blessed. Go in peace.